Brian, would you mind opening us up with prayer? Lord, we thank you for this time, this opportunity to get together and study your word. We thank you that Pastor Eric is uh, back with us today. We also thank you, Father, that uh, Eric Fredrickson is back uh, amongst his uh, beloved here at uh, Gospel of Grace. We thank you, Lord, that we're able to look into your word today and use it as we lead out our daily lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to be with all of you here. Um, As you know, we're going through this systematic theology course, and the title of it is, Are You a Calvinist? And one of the reasons I wanted to answer that question is most often when people ask that question, they're really asking, do you believe in the doctrine of election and predestination, which we do. However, last time we were going through this section, I showed you all of the doctrinal areas where we do differ with Calvin, and there are a number of them. In fact, that was on the previous slide. But now we've turned our attention to where we agree with Calvin, in particular the areas of soteriology. The doctrine of soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. In fact, last time, I'll just give you a little review. We talked about salvation being both justification, I should say, and sanctification, and also glorification. And you notice on the screen, this is the way most Reformed will consider these categories. Justification is that you have been saved. You've been declared righteous before God. Sanctification is that we are being saved or being transformed to the image of Christ. And glorification is that we will be saved. In other words, we will one day be given a resurrected body. The way I like to think of these three categories is the first one was we've been saved from the penalty of sin. Second, we've been saved from the power of sin and are being saved from the power of sin. And the third category in glorification is one day we're going to be saved from the presence of sin. In glory, we will no longer sin against our God. So what I want to focus on is justification. Justification is the part of soteriology where you and I learn how we have right standing before God. A holy and righteous God who cannot tolerate sinners in his presence, as it says in Psalm 5, 4 through 5, no one who has ever done evil shall ever dwell with the Lord. So how is it that all of us who have done evil can ever dwell with him? That's what justification is about. And Calvin and the Reformers were spot on from the scriptures that justification was by faith alone. In fact, I think I gave you this quote, but let me give it to you again. Calvin said this, he says, I trust, by the way, this is from his Institutes, this is book three. He said, quote, I trust I have now sufficiently shown how man's only resource for escaping from the curse of the law and recovering salvation lies in faith and also what the nature of faith is, what the, benefit, what the benefits are that it confers and the fruits, excuse me, the fruits which it produces. So yes, Calvin believed that we are saved by faith alone. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles again back to Romans 4. I think we left off with this passage last time, but it bears repeating. And the reason why is in Romans 4, 2 through 3, you're going to see that justification has always been by faith. That a justification for a wretched sinner has always been by faith alone in the promises of God, namely Christ alone. But we'll continue reading Romans 4, 2 through 3. 
And notice here, Paul is talking about Abraham. Now, by the way, why is he using Abraham? Because Abraham is the father of faith. That the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15, Abraham believed the promises of God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, remember, that happened hundreds of years before the law ever came. And one of the arguments that Paul makes is certainly justification couldn't be by works or works of the law, for that hadn't happened yet. So one thing I want you to think of conceptually is that, in a sense, the Abrahamic covenant is being fulfilled in the new covenant. And I like to think of the Mosaic covenant as a temporary parenthesis in which God showed us just how vile we are, just how sinful we are. So that, as he says earlier in Romans, that every mouth may be shut. Because the law of God, if the righteousness of God is by works then certainly the elect Jews would have done that through the greatest law ever given. But they could not. Uh, Yes, Scott. So the Abrahamic covenant, is is it not still in effect as as though the the Mosaic covenant has been overturned? Yeah, that's the way I like to think of it, is that the new covenant is, in a sense, the fulfillment of the promises given to Abraham. Uh, Remember, Jesus says... In John eight fifty eight, before Abraham was, I am. Well, two verses before that, he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. So he saw it from afar. And so, yes, when Abraham is led outside, remember in the cutting of the covenant in Genesis 15, who leads him outside to look at the stars? Well, this is probably the pre-incarnate Christ. Um, I think this is a theophany. And then what's interesting is when Abraham believes God, It's credited him as righteousness. Well, right after that, Abraham still says, well, how do I know? Well, do you remember, what is the response? Well, God puts him asleep. And remember, he has Abraham first cut all the animals in half. Now, why does he have all the animals cut in half? Well, because in the ancient Near East at the time, if you're going to make a covenant with another, for example, tribe, what you do is you don't just make a covenant, you cut a covenant. The term cut is karath. The term in Hebrew for covenant is bereath. So cutting a covenant is karath bereath. That's what you do. So what he would do is he'd cut the animals in half, and the image is that the pool of blood was something that you would walk through. So what Abraham would do is he would normally walk through that if he was cutting a covenant with another tribe. But if you notice in Genesis 15, Abraham doesn't walk through the blood, does he? He's put asleep. So who alone walks the blood path? Now, what's interesting is what they would do in the ancient Near East is they would say, when they cut the animal, they would walk through the blood and they would say, if I go against my promise of this covenant, may what happened to this filthy animal happen to me in sevenfold. And then the other party would walk through the blood. And they would say, if I go against the terms of the covenant, may what happened to this filthy animal happen to me in sevenfold. So Abraham snoozing, and who alone walks that blood? God does. And in essence, what he's saying is, if I ever go against the terms of the covenant, unilaterally, it's all on God, may what happened to this filthy animal happen to me. And certainly we know God is never going to be cursed, is he? He's the one who's blessed forever. And that's why we can take the terms of the Abrahamic covenant to the bank. One other interesting point, Isn't it interesting, this happens 400 years prior to the law. Isn't it interesting that all the animals that he cuts 
are animals that end up being part of the sacrificial system. Now, what's very interesting is take a Jew under the Mosaic Covenant. Fast forward to the Mosaic Covenant. Is a Jew ever saved by the cutting of the animals themselves? No, he's saved by faith just like Abraham. But so that he will know that God is one one day going to walk the blood path again, the animals are cut. So the Abrahamic covenant, the, the, the animals are cut to look forward. Mosaic covenant, the animals are cut to look forward. Because one day at Mount Moriah, Messiah comes. And he walks the blood path once again. And that's why Jesus says, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is in what? It's in my blood. His blood is shed. And the ratification of the Abrahamic covenant is found in him. So that's the significance of what Paul is commenting on. And I'm giving you more background probably than it's warranted, but that's the significance of what Paul's talking about in Romans 4. Yeah. Yeah, uh, this, is, this is just extremely important stuff. And uh, years ago, uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, and you guys have mentioned him, oh, and he has an online course on the covenants. And as part of that, he mentioned that you have conditional covenants and unconditional covenants. The Abrahamic covenant is unconditional because as you mentioned, God made the promise. Abraham did not have to walk through. And at Fruchtenbaum, anyway, is referring to the Mosaic covenant as a conditional covenant. In other words, that covenant can be ended if both parties don't. Now, Jesus Christ gave us an unconditional covenant. So this Amen. is just critical and important. So I wanted to, that's what you're hitting on, I think. Too. Absolutely. Yeah. Well said, Eric. In fact, if you look at Deuteronomy 27, 28, you see the terms of the Mosaic covenant. Remember at Mount Gerizim, Nebal? So you have, the if you don't do the terms of the covenant, you're cursed. If you do the terms of the covenant, you're blessed. And Yahweh had taken one nation alone and given those terms of the Mosaic Covenant, namely Israel. No other nation was ever given those terms. So now as Americans, you and I are living under the new covenant. And what's so sad is so many people want to go back as if the old covenant, number one, is still in effect. Number two, that it was somehow ever given to America. No, it was given to Israel and it's no longer in effect. So yes, we're under the new covenant and uh, well said. So it's a unilateral covenant unconditional given by God now notice here in Romans 4 2 through 3 Paul says for if Abraham was justified by works he has something to boast about but not before God so notice there let's stop in verse 2 is there anything that Abraham can boast well Paul makes the point not before God implying what it's not by works there's nothing Abraham did think about of all the thousands of people that existed at that time millions Why was Abraham chosen out of the land of the Chaldeans, out of Ur? Why was he chosen? It's God's sovereign good choice. It's God's prerogative, right? So he has nothing to boast about. Now notice in verse 3, it says, For what does the scripture say? Now, here's a citation from Genesis 15, 6. He says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Dear ones, notice the term credited. The term credited comes from a Greek term, legitimai. That functions 11 times just in Romans 4. Legitimai, what does legitimai mean? It means to credit someone's account. Okay, it's actually a financial term. Sometimes it's used in the judicial system as well. But normally it was a financial term in antiquity, and it had to do with someone's account being credited. Okay, 
Now, why that's so significant is this. The justification that Abraham receives by faith, that you and I receive by faith, is a foreign righteousness. The reformers understood this very clearly. In other words, take myself for, I'm a wretched sinner. And when I trusted in Jesus, it wasn't that there was a little bit of righteousness that was within me. And over time, God promised to just make that well up and become bigger and bigger. And and finally, one day I'd be righteous. No, I had nothing to offer. The righteousness that's given to me comes from God. And that's why you and I are clothed in Christ. This is why he had to be the new Adam. He had to live the perfect life that you and I could not. Israel went to the wilderness for 40 years. They failed. Jesus went to the wilderness for 40 days. He succeeded. Why? He's a faithful son. He's a faithful man that no human ever could. So it's his righteousness that's not only credited to Abraham ahead of time, but it's also credited our account. So this is a forensic justification, meaning you and I in the courtroom of God have been declared righteous forevermore. And because we've been clothed in Christ, and by the way, that's one of the things we're celebrating today. Remember in Galatians chapter 3, it says, as many as you were baptized in Christ have been clothed in Christ. That's what we're celebrating. We're with him. That's where our righteousness comes from. So that's justification. And Calvin absolutely had that right. He understood that it was by faith alone. Now, here comes the next question, though, that I want to raise. The question that we want to wrestle with is now, why do some believe and some don't? That's an important question, and there's really two options. Let me put the two options out there, and I don't think that there's a third option. It's binary. The choice is between what we call synergism and monergism. What is synergism? Synergism has to do with a cooperative effort of at least two. Okay, that's what synergy is. Um, one analogy I thought of is years ago I was in a, a program. It was a junior ROTC program in the Navy. And we had to learn how to do some firefighting. Every sailor is a firefighter. And one of the things you learn is that in order for there to be a fire, you have a triad of things. You have to have fuel you have to have oxygen, and you have to have heat. You get rid of any one of those things, you get rid of the fire. Why? Because they work synergistically. Okay? They're not alone. They have to work together. You get rid of one of them, it ceases to exist. So let's take that to the idea of faith. Most people's conception of faith is that human beings have something to contribute. The reason why some believe is because they were smarter than their unbelieving neighbor because they chose to believe in Christ while their unbelieving neighbor did not. That's synergism. Monergism says, no, it's completely a work of God. Even the faith that we have was given to us through regeneration so that even the faith that justifies us before God, where we are given the imputed righteousness of Christ, is a gift of God's enablement So that salvation is completely of God. That's monergism. Now, what I'm going to do is, in the next slides, what I'm going to show you is I think this only makes sense if you understand the doctrine of depravity. I like to use the term total depravity, but some misunderstand total depravity to mean utter depravity. Now, let me explain the difference. What the Bible teaches 
regarding sin and its effect on humans is that it affects the whole of the person, the way we think, our, our desires, our emotions, even our bodies. It affects the entirety of the person. That's total depravity. And total depravity leads to the problem of inability, where human beings cannot trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said in John 6, no one has the ability to come unto me unless the Father draws him. No one has the ability. Dunamis is the term. Literally, no one has the power. No one has the ability. That's the term I like to use. Okay? So, that's the problem with total depravity. Now, utter depravity would be that we're as sinful as possible. That we're utterly just so sinful that we never do anything good and all we do is evil 100% of the time. The Bible doesn't teach that. And one of the ways that God restrains that is through his common grace. He does do that even with the unregenerate. But total depravity is something that we're going to turn to look at. Now, what I want to do is talk about the antecedent to justification, and I'm going to use this to talk about total depravity as we come to it. Now, an antecedent is something that occurs prior. So because we want to understand justification, we want to understand why is it that some believe, again, and some don't. And what I'm going to do is show you the question I think is best answered by saying God is the one who chooses to give faith to some and chooses to bypass others and allow them to to remain in their sinful condition. That's what you're going to see. So what we want to do is talk about predestination. This is the antecedent to justification. It happens prior. Okay. Now one thing I want to mention is when it comes to predestination, every single Christian has to have some doctrine of this. Why? Because it's a biblical term. God uses it in his word. Predestined is used over and over and over. So the debate then should be between believers about what does this term mean. Now let me give you my definition of predestination. I'll just read it to you. That salvation is solely based on God's sovereign choice and that people are chosen for salvation because they are sovereignly chosen by God they are therefore enabled to believe in the gospel. God's sovereign choice of believers is based on no merit of humans, but solely on his good pleasure. The reason he chooses any of us, the reason he chose Abraham, wasn't because Abraham was better than anyone else. It was based solely on God's good pleasure. Think about the Apostle Paul. Wasn't he the worst of sinners? In fact, he was murdering the church. So, Vile was he that when he's confronted on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, remember he's murdering Christians? Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? You persecute a Christian, you're persecuting Christ himself. He was a Christ persecutor. So why did God reach out to him and save him? He had certainly nothing going for him. That was God's sovereign choice. Now, one other doctrine I want to tie into this idea of predestination, the idea that before the foundation of the world, God sovereignly, according to his good pleasure, chose to enable some to believe. That's predestination. Oh, oh, there goes the voice box. Sorry about that. Along with that is what we call the doctrine of calling. Bob and I have talked a lot about this idea of calling. In the Bible, if we want to get our theology right, there's two different types of calling. There's something called a universal call. 
That's a universal call so that all may repent and believe. Okay? The universal call goes out to every single person. It's not limited. Uh, I'll give you an example here in a moment from Romans chapter 10 that we'll read. But there's a second type of calling that goes with predestination, and that's called the effectual call. Now, that call isn't just an invitation. That's the universal call. But it's the, <clears throat> the effectual call is where a person is enabled by God, by the Spirit, to believe the gospel. Okay, and I'll give you an example of that. So let's turn our Bibles, first of all, to Romans 10, 11 through 13. Now, the reason I want you to turn your Bibles to Romans 10, 11 through 13, is I want you to see evidence of the universal call. And this is something that Bob and I give almost every Sunday. A universal call that all who call upon the name of the Lord indeed will be saved. All who will trust in him. Romans 10, 11 through 13, Paul says, For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. So let's stop there for just a moment. That's from Isaiah 28, 16. Isaiah 28, 16 ultimately is about the Messiah, the stone that's laid in Zion. And those who trust in him are never going to be disappointed. I love this verse. This is a verse that I keep with me in my dark hours. Why? Because you know that if you breathe your last, the best is yet to come. If you trust in Christ, you're not going to be disappointed. You're heading for resurrection. Do you have the forgiveness of sins? That's what you have. Now, those who don't trust in him, what do they do? They stumble over the stone that's laid in Zion. So that stone, you either trust and you won't be disappointed or you stumble over him. But notice in verse 12, Romans 10, 12, Paul says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Verse 13, he says, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, does anyone know where that comes from? That comes from Joel 2.32. Remember the great promise in Joel 2 at the end of the chapter? Is that one day God would pour out his spirit upon all mankind. And this is, of course, what we see happen in the New Covenant. That when Jesus ascends, he does send his spirit, enabling people to believe. And notice, this is what Paul, or excuse me, Peter is preaching in Acts 2.21. That's what Bob was showing us. The sermon that Peter is preaching at Pentecost is taken from Joel 2.32. And the whole point of Peter's sermon is when he cites all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved, He is proving to you that Messiah, Jesus, is the one that you should call on. He is the Lord. What's the ultimate evidence of that? The empty tomb. Psalm 16.10. The holy would not not see decay. That couldn't apply to David. Why? Because David was rotting in the tomb. He did see decay. Peter reasons, ah, it must apply to the Christ. Therefore, if the tomb is empty and he is raised from the dead, Jesus is the name of the Lord that you should call upon. And that's why later in Acts 4.12, there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. That's the idea. So that's the universal call. It's really open to every single person. If you'll trust upon Jesus, he's not going to by any means cast you out. Yes. I just wondered about the reference. You said Isaiah 20.16. There is I'm sorry, 28.16. Thank you. Thank you, Marilyn. Yep. And that was for uh, 
Romans 10, 11. So that's the universal call. It really is open to everyone. Now let's stop here and think a minute. If Jesus says in John 6, 44, which he does, no one can come to me, literally no one has the ability to come unto me unless the Father draws them, then what effect will the universal call have if God doesn't first regenerate? Would anyone trust in him? No. Now, that doesn't mean we negate the universal call. In fact, we know that he's promised to use the universal call to bring about the effectual call. That's why it says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But no one will believe the universal call unless they are regenerated by God. Now, let me show you the effectual call. Great passage that shows that is found in Romans 8, 29 through 30, um, Bob has pointed out too, sometimes the effectual call is called the internal call. Uh, different theologians will call it different things. It's, we're, so if you see a, a systematic theology text, it calls it the internal call. I'm using the, the term effectual, same thing. <clears throat> effectual or ter- internal calling. Now turn your Bibles to Romans 8, 29 through 30, and we'll look and see the effectual call. Now this again is the calling where God enables people to believe the universal call. Universal call goes out. They won't believe it. Why? Because they're wretched sinners dead in Adam. The, the effectual call enables them to believe. Romans 8, 29 through 30. Notice in verse 29, <clears throat> Paul says, regarding the elect, regarding the people of God, those who believe, he says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Okay, now let's stop there for just a moment. Notice in the beginning of verse 29 where it says, for those whom he foreknew. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting is today many Arminians, especially in the Wesleyan tradition, they believe that this foreknowledge of God is where God in eternity looks down <clears throat> the corridors of time and he sees who will trust in him. And on the basis of that knowledge, that foreknowledge, he chooses them for salvation and therefore regenerates them, enables them to believe. That is not the biblical concept of foreknowledge. Why? Because what Paul is building on is some concept from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the term that was used in Hebrew was yada. And yada literally means to know someone in an intimate way, like a husband knows his wife. Now, one of the verses you want to jot down for this is Genesis 4.1. Please jot down Genesis 4.1. We won't turn to it, but in that verse, it says that Adam knew his wife. Yavah. Now, does that simply mean that Adam knew when he looked at his wife, that's my wife. My wife Eve, I can spot her a mile away. She has curly hair. and No, that's not what the Lord is saying. It's a euphemism that he was intimate with her. In the same way that term is used throughout the Old Testament, where God knows his people differently than he knows other people. See, God is all-knowing. He knows all things. So when it says that those are those that he foreknew, that he predestined, it's not just foreknowing, it's that he foreloved them, that he was intimate with this people before the foundation of the world. That's the best understanding of foreknowledge here, in verse 1. Okay? Now, continuing, notice those whom he foreknew, 
you could, I like to write in my notes sometimes, for loved. He was intimate with them. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Now here's the purpose statement. So that he, that's Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. One thing I want you to notice is notice those whom he foreknew he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. When you get to the term, when it says that he predestined, called, justified, glorified, all those verbs are in the aorist tense. All of them, meaning in God's eyes, they're done. It's something that's happened. It's called a proleptic aorist. It's as good as done. So in God's eyes, if you've been predestined, you've also been glorified. That's how secure you are. It's one of the greatest passages in all of the Bible about security. Bob. Um, I took a logic class from a, an infamous friend of ours, uh, Rod Schultz, remember? Yes. The guy that caused you to right. have a conflict at the seminary? Yes. He was new, and logic is all I took from him, because yeah. he got that right. Right. Although now he's not a Christian. He's yeah. renounced Christ. But anyhow... <clears throat> We were learning chain logic. Mm. And when you have a chain argument, you have a class uh, that it applies to, and then the descriptions. Yeah. And in a chain argument, each thing listed applies to everyone in the class. Wow. Of people. Amen. Okay? So, Laurent, who's, by the way, no conservative by any means. Right, right. I was looking at Romans 8 back then. I was in the 90s because there was a big debate going on about this. It, it, Christians always seem to be offended that God chose them. Yeah. I mean, I've run into that for 40 years. Why are we offended that God blessed us with salvation? Well, we think God ought to be fair uh, because, I don't know, yeah. So they were debating. A lot of people couldn't stand me teaching Romans eight twenty nine thirty, yeah. and want to hear it. Yeah. So why would God inspire something that the church isn't supposed to know about? Amen. Okay, so I went to Laurent Schultz, no conservative. I said, "Here's how I," and I laid it out in logical apparatus. Here it is. Yeah. Is this a chain argument? And he said, "Yes, that is a chain argument." Wow. Okay. What I didn't know then, but we found out later, he didn't believe a word of it. But he knew Paul had a chain argument. He just didn't believe Paul. (laughs) Now, meaning that all the justified are also glorified. There's no such thing as someone justified, then unjustified, and then justified, and then unjustified, and maybe or maybe not glorified. Amen. So those who believe and are justified can take comfort in the fact that God will bring us through to the end. I just got a really nasty email from a guy viciously attacking me because he didn't like the idea that Christians weren't going to lose their salvation. And uh, how do you help somebody? I, I said, well, 
why are you, it's hard to even know what to say. And the point is, this isn't giving comfort. Leron Schultz renounced Christ. He's an atheist. I don't believe he's going to heaven. Exactly. He must have signed a statement to get into the seminary that he believed things he didn't really believe. And there are many, I know, I got a letter from a pastor that we knew back in the 70s who had renounced Christ. And one of our members had been giving him material that I'd written. And he said, well, I appreciate the zeal of your member, but tell him not to waste his time. Since I've renounced Christ, my life is so much better. I've gotten wealthy. I've got a wonderful family. I'm so happy. I'm not angry. Just don't give me your material. I don't want to hear about it. I'm perfectly happy being an atheist. So I told this guy, emailed me, well, I've run into people like that, and I don't tell people that, oh, you're you're the elect, so therefore you can go live like the devil and you're going to go to heaven. That's not what it's saying. Right, amen. Okay, this golden chain means that God's going to bring us all the way to the end. And so, if if you don't mind, I'll give your voice a little rest here. Um, What I thought about after that thing, because it was so intense, why would you just go and superficially see somebody's website and then just with vicious hostility attack somebody you don't know as an evil heretic, which is what he considered me? Why do they do that? Is that Christian? I don't, well, I don't know, but I just, but here's what it boiled down to. Really, it boils down to what can be called mental acts. There, that's why there's a disconnect in a debate. What Eric is telling us about is ontological. And I've defined that many times. It's from the uh, Greek um, participle ont, ontos, and it means uh, of an order of being. So ontologically, as a matter of ultimate reality and being, all the justified ultimately are glorified. God knows that. But they take that in a more psychological or mental act uh, sense. And they're saying, well, uh, we know there are some people that are Christian Backslide, and if they die while they're backslid, they're going to go to hell. But see, but we don't know the heart. God knows the heart, and the names in the Lamb's Book of Life are known only to God. I asked the guy that. I said, "Do you know who's in the Book of Life? I don't. Do you? Do you have a copy of it? (laughs) We don't know. Okay. And so he was. That's just psychological. It's what we know and what we don't know. God knows those who are His. And but I said to the guy, trying to be pastoral, I said, "Listen, I care about people and their well-being, and I honestly do not believe that telling people that depending on how things are going week by week, their salvation comes and goes and comes and goes." And you better hope you die when it came rather than when it went. Right, right. And I asked the guy, how can someone receive the gift of eternal life that's temporary? Yeah. I was looking at the Greek of eternal life. It means, have you seen it? Into the ages. Into the ages. So Jesus talked about people having the gift of eternal life that goes into the ages. So how does it go away in three weeks? Well, see, 
we're confusing things. And so what God is giving to com- giving us as promises to comfort his people, we need to take comfort in and not get angry and assume that, oh, I'm going to grab onto that and go sin all I can because I know I'll be forgiven. Why would somebody do that? Because Christians, those who are born of God, no one who's born of God sins, John said. And sin is lawlessness. It doesn't mean we're sinless. It means we're not lawless. And whatever sin we have as it becomes apparent, we feel very bad about it. And we talk to each other. Have you been able to overcome this or that? I need help. Pray for me. How can we do this? How can I? Well, we were just talking about that, Brian. How can I drive without being angry? (laughs) Well, see, there's things like, but Christians care about that. If you're not a Christian, you don't care. You just run them into the ditch and feel good as you drive off. I'll let you save your voice. I'll ask him. (laughs) So um, as I interact with some of these people through the CIC Facebook page, it's kind of struck me recently that they're usually missing two important categories. One is the category of false convert. So they're automatically assuming that anybody who ever has professed faith actually was a Christian. And so then they can look out and say, well, I've seen all these people fall away. So I know there's not eternal security. But there again, what they don't know is if that person's name ever was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And they don't know what God's going to do yet in the future with that person. And it seems that the other category that they're missing would be the three theological terms, notitia, ascensus, fiducia. They may do you want to talk about those? Sure. Okay. Sure. Yeah, it's sort of like our English word. I think you've talked about this recently. Yeah. Assent. You know, assent. Give assent to facts. Yeah. Notitia. Knowing. Having knowledge of facts. And fiducia would be trusting. When we say that saving faith, faith has all three. But see, again, it goes back to mental acts. In other words, there are people that have been said, been told, if you raise your hand, sign the card, and go forward, you're saved. Okay? And then they go forth, and there's no signs of regeneration because their life doesn't, is any different than it ever was. But, they, but then they're told, well, once saved, always saved, which is what that guy really wanted to yeah. debate. But said, again, this is mental acts. There are people who think I grew up in this church or I did this or I did that, so I must be a Christian, but they're living for the devil. But that's their psychological state, not their ontological uh, status. In other words, born of God, regenerate, full of the Spirit, and bound for heaven. It's two different things. Okay, and so there are Judases and there are Peters. Hey, Bob, I got a, as you said that, I thought of an analogy. The difference between mental acts and ontological existence, let's say you have a person in the, I hate to use the term, in the, the ha-ha Hilton, in the, the, a mental institute. And, uh, <laughs> okay. and they are convinced in their mind that they are a test pilot. 
Okay, now really, they're, they're, they've never flown an airplane, but they're convinced in their mind they're a test pilot. Ontologically, they aren't, they don't exist as a test pilot. But in their mental acts, they're a test pilot in their mind. Um, a good example of this, a census notition fiducia can be seen in the book of James to show you that this is biblical. This isn't something that I think the reformers are wrong on. Why? Because in the book of James, it talks about demons and how they believe and shudder. So even the demons believe they knew exactly who Jesus is. They have mental assent. They can say, yeah, Jesus is Lord. We, we know that fact. They believe it. They actually understand that this is the way the world really is. The way the world, the way reality is, is Jesus is God, creator of all things, Lord of all. They believe. But the third part of saving faith, fiducia, trust, that's where they are lost. They want nothing to do with it. They want nothing to do with him. In fact, they hate him. Okay? And so that's where salvation comes. It's not just having mental assent of the facts about Christ and having knowledge of Christ. Those are important. But it's saying, that's for me. Um, just as it said in Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen, those who will trust upon the stone, the Messiah laid in Zion, they're not going to be disappointed. And if you believe that and say, that's for me, that's what I'm living for. Um, it's one thing to say, I have a mental assent that this is a chair. I trust that it will support me. Fiducia is where I sit in it. So when you and I trust upon Christ, we're sitting in him. We're trusting in him. He's for us, right? So that's the idea, and that's exactly right. Um, yeah, Brian. I, I don't know the verse, but uh, they went out from us, therefore they never were of us. Yeah, and, personally. Uh, Pardon? What is it? That's right. That's yeah. First. Yeah. Yeah. Right. First John. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, ontologically, the people that left, they at one time they thought mentally that they were of them, but That's when right. they left, then they weren't truly of God's predestination. Absolutely. I had uh, on, on a humorous note when we had the church split. I had people say to me that we left, therefore we were not of them. Yeah, yeah. The going out. Um, the reason why it was so significant in John's day is because John was an apostle teaching apostolic truth about Christ come in the flesh, which was under attack. And so those who departed were departing from the word of Christ. It wasn't two groups of believers that have a divide on some issue. Yeah. This is a divide between believers who are holding to the apostolic word about the doctrines of Christ and those who wouldn't tolerate it. Yeah, Jesse. So what you just said made me think, so we've actually, um, some of us at least, have seen a real-life example of this um, recently with Josh Harris, who was a young man who wrote some I've only actually read one of them, but the one I read was actually very, very good. Um, he was a pastor. He was a really very well-respected Christian. So he outwardly knew the truth. He outwardly taught the truth. And then recently announced that based on what he knows of Christianity and his own beliefs, he's not a Christian. So he knows it. He taught it. But no fiducia, not for him. I, he's, he, he comes right out and says, I believe this is all true, 
but if this is true, then it's not for me. That's so right. he went out in, in, sadly, a rather spectacular fashion. Wow. But that just shows he never had the fiducia. He That's knew right. all the facts, but it was never personal. It was never for him. Amen. Well said. Well said. Yeah, and on that note, I've known that's like that pastor that we used to know. Listen, if you are born of God and you know Christ, you're trusting him, something another Christian does in the name of Christ cannot remove you from the faith. Amen. No one who's trusting Christ is going to leave Christ because they don't like what some church does or what some Christians do. Yeah, amen. Because we all have things that we don't like about what some church does or what some Christians do. But that can't take us away from Christ. Amen. Amen. And so anybody who says, well, the, the Christians are such hypocrites, I'm not going to serve God. Try that one at the great white throne judgment. Yeah. Right. Amen. Yeah, well I don't said. think it'll work. Yeah. Amen. <clears throat> one thing I want to mention is we give the, we'll give the mic to Dan. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead if you want um, just that whole idea of the, the chain, um, yeah. and it, when you confront somebody, maybe that's in, in a, the Catholic system or, or like Bob, I was just recently lis- listening to your, um, debate with Doug Padgett from years ago. You know, when you confront people that claim to be Christian with what the scriptures say, and then they refuse to believe that, um, I mean, where's the point where, you know, where where those people are not the called, but they still maintain that they're Christian, but they're, in other words, you you, you keep working on them and you keep discussing things and, dis, and, and debating things with them and they refuse to believe some of the core things of Christianity, like, like Jesus is in the Eucharist and that type of thing. Um, so... That's where I have a difficulty. Um, you know, you have the false believers. In in my mind, they're false because they won't won't listen to the truth and they won't believe the truth yeah. uh, of yeah. Scripture. Yeah. So it's yeah, amen. It's a hard thing. You know, um, yeah. You know what I would say to that is the distortion of Christ, His person, and His work is damnable. You think about the um, when Jesus in His earthly ministry talks about the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin was attributing the power of the Spirit, which demonstrated the Messiah, Jesus as the Messiah. Attributing that to Satan was unforgivable. Why? Because the Spirit is the one who regenerates. And if you won't listen to the Spirit, there's no way you can ever come to Christ. And this is why Paul warned about in 2 Corinthians 11, he said, I fear that you'll go after a different Christ, uh, you'll have a different Spirit, and a different Gospel. If we distort, as the Catholic Church does the person and work of Christ, it's damnable. And the reason why is because they have a different Christ, one that doesn't fully save. And because they have a different Christ that doesn't fully save apart from their works, it's not the Christ of the Bible. It's an idol. It's a God of their own making. They're an idolater no different than the ones that Paul was referring to in Romans 1, where they made a God in their own image and they worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator who's forever praised. And so Jesus, from first to last, saves. This is why when Bob is teaching us uh, through Colossians and Ephesians, what was on the table in Asia Minor was, yeah, the Christians started with Christ, but if we want protection against these demonic beings, we're going to need the help of angels, 
We're going to need um, other uh, religious ceremony. We're going to need perhaps um, you know, incantations and all sorts of things, amulets. But what's that a compromise? It's a compromise on Christ alone. So think about it when the Roman Catholic Church, they think that a person, as soon as they're baptized, is regenerated. But as soon as they sin, they lose their salvation. Well, wait, doesn't the Bible teach that as soon as a person, as we just read in Romans 8, 29 through 30, is regenerated, they're called, they're justified, they're also going to be glorified. It's a compromise on the person and work of Christ. And so that's what I see it as. So what's damnable heresy is when you have a different Christ, either in his person or his work. That's what's unforgivable. And uh, so that's the, the point, I think, where we have to say, no, we won't go there. Yeah. Yeah, Brian. Dan had a, uh, a question in there, too, and that was, at what point do you say to yourself, wow, I've been spending all this time and the person's not changing, and is he one of, not one of God's elect? I yeah. think the answer to that is, well, you never do. You, you never give up. That there is no, you, you can't just, you know, we're, we're to go and, and uh, uh, spread the gospel, and it's not for us to determine who is and who isn't, and how much time do we spend? Yeah, there is a, there is a warning against casting your pearls before swine. And there is a point where we realize someone has a census, they know the facts. They even understand what the facts are, but they want nothing to do with it. At that point, I think we say, you know what? I'm not going to cast my pearls before swine. That's what Jesus pointed out. And um, just as Bob was pointing out, this is a sin with a high hand. Well, People I, say, yeah. I, I ask that because in, in my instance, for years with the church next door to me, yeah. I railed on them on a daily basis. And all they ever did was pray for me for years. Sure. And if they said, well, forget this guy, yeah. we don't want nothing to do with them, thank God that they continued. Yeah. Yeah, amen. Doing a mental Right, right. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Now, one thing I want to mention about predestination, and we'll read a couple of verses in our closing, but one thing I want to mention in predestination, I want you to think of God being hands-on. Now, what I mean by that is in predestination, God is choosing wretched sinners that he's chosen before the foundation of the world to regenerate, to enable them to believe in his son. Now, here's a distinction I want to make. In reprobation, now what's reprobation? Reprobation is God sovereignly choosing, according to his good pleasure before the foundation of the world, those that he will bypass, that he will just leave to their own devices. Okay? And it's a natural, I think, uh, result of predestination. Obviously, if God is choosing some to pour his saving grace upon, he's obviously choosing some not to. But what's different about predestination and reprobation is in predestination, God is hands-on. He has to regenerate the lost sinner, enabling them to believe. But what does he have to do in reprobation to damn lost sinners? He just leaves them alone. So therefore, whose sin, excuse me, whose responsibility is the unregenerate sin? It's their own. God is just leaving them to their own devices. Now, one of the passages that I think is important that makes this distinction is found in James 1, 13 through 14. Please turn your Bibles there if you have a moment. James 1, 13 through 14. Now, here's why. I want to show that, indeed, God is not 
the author of the unregenerate's evil. He's not the author of it. He is not the architect of their evil when they do it. James 1, 13 through 14, James says, Let no one say, now notice the universal, let no one, no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself, adjectival intensive, this is God himself, does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So what James is ultimately pointing out is the problem with our sin isn't outside of us, it's in here. So the reason this helps us understand the idea of fairness when it comes to the doctrine of predestination versus reprobation is in reprobation, God isn't causing anyone to disbelieve. That's who they are in themselves. The greatest sin that anyone could ever commit is to disbelieve in the Son, to not believe. That will not be forgiven. So God isn't causing that. That's inherent to who the sinner is. So when God leaves them alone, how is he unjust? The sin is theirs. The unbelief is theirs. To me, that helped with the issue of fairness. In reprobation, the unbelief is theirs alone. Now, are they commanded to believe the gospel? Yes. Are they culpable for not believing the gospel? Jesus commands in the opening verses in Mark, Mark 1.15, everyone is commanded to repent and believe the gospel. I often say that's not a helpful hint or a suggestion. That's a command. People are commanded to believe. And so if they will not, it's not on God. It's on them. The universal call has gone out. But in their wretchedness, in their sinful condition, they will not believe. So what I'm going to be laying out in the next weeks is I'm going to be proving to you the inability of man. I'm, I'm claiming that if you don't understand predestination or reprobation, if those don't make sense to you, it's probably because you don't understand the sin nature of man. What I'm going to show you is the sin nature of man is so bleak, so bad, that left her own devices, not one person would ever believe. And therefore, all of a sudden, the fairness issue starts to go out the window. Because would God not be just to send every one of us to hell because we've all rebelled against him? Certainly he would. So if God chooses to save some and be merciful, what's it to us? And I'll be showing you an argument that Paul himself makes from Romans 9. Yes, Eric. Yeah, I just, there's another verse that, that really, you know, with this predestination doctrine. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at Colossians uh, chapter 3, verse 12, and I'll just read that. Yes, thank you. And, and there's just nowhere to hide with this. It says, so as those who have been chosen of God, okay, yeah. holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, etc. So yes. chosen of God. In other words, you can't play word games with that, I don't think. Yeah, amen. Um, Bob was showing us, oops, excuse me. <coughs> Bob was showing us in Acts 13, 48. Remember that passage? Paul's preaching at Antioch, Pisidia. What does it say? It says, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. How many believe? Well, those who were appointed to eternal life. Um, let me just read some other passages, to, and we'll, we'll end on these. Ephesians 1, 3 through 4, Bob taught us this. 
Paul said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Stop there. He chose believers in Christ that we would be in him, and it was before the foundation of the world. What did you do before the foundation of the world? I didn't do anything. So it certainly wasn't based on my merit. It was based on his sovereign choice, his good pleasure. Notice the purpose statement that happens. Notice at the end of the verse, it's that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. One more, just to show you, this is all over the Bible, just as Eric was pointing out. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 14, Paul says, but we should always give thanks to God for you. That was the Thessalonican believers. Brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Notice, God had chosen them from what? From the beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of time. The beginning of creation. What did you do before the foundation of the world, before the beginning of time? Nothing. It was due solely on God's good pleasure. That's how he chooses. Yes, Scott. Just uh cap that uh, the um, God's predestination is for God's glory as well as just as much God's judgment is for his glory as well. Amen. You're exactly right, Scott. And that's where in Romans 9, I like to think of the entire Bible as a big, just think of uh, this is the image that comes to my head. I don't know why, but think of it as a big tent. Okay, the Bible. And in Romans 9, you have the little part of the tent that goes up and out of it. You get a little peek at why is God doing all this? And he really answers it there. He says it's because he's going to be glorified by those that are the reprobate, the vessels of destruction. He's also going to be glorified by the vessels of mercy. It is all for his glory. And God, as Paul argues, uh, and we'll show this next time, can do what he wants with his sandbox. If you want a sandbox, you're even a five-year-old, you know you can do what you want with it. God owns it all. And he can have some for destruction and some for honor, and it's all for his glory. Just think about, dear ones, what if God never allowed sin? Certainly you would say, well, he's a just God, he's a good God, he's an omnipotent God. There's a lot of things that he would show, but through allowing sin, he was also able to show his mercy a mercy that he could never show without allowing sin. And so the very tolerance of sin was God's way of showing his full orb glory. That's really the ultimate answer to evil, that God tolerates it, yes, will overcome it, but it's all for his glory. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the great doctrines of the faith, and we thank you so much that you've chosen us out of the world and that we belong to your Son, that in him we have all of the promises of eternity, as Bob said, unto the ages. We thank you for these things. We pray for Bob as he preaches the sermon to us this week. We pray that we'd have ears to hear. I pray for sweet fellowship and for those who are being baptized, Lord, that this would be a day that they never forget, that they're with you going to glory, that there's no going back to Egypt. They're on the way to the promised land. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.